preaching of God's Word is from Philippians chapter 2. We take up two, perhaps three-part series on a few of the verses from this chapter. For the sake of context, we'll read from verse 1 through 11, but we'll be focusing this afternoon on verses 5 to 8. Philippians chapter 2, reading from verse 1 to 11 to focus on verses 5 to 8. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This afternoon we limit our attention to verses 5 through 8 primarily, which you'll notice is a continuation of the exhortation that Paul brings to the attention of the Philippians. So you see the exhortation, let this mind be in you. Have this mind, have this thought, have this disposition, have this approach to things, which was also in Christ Jesus, which then turns Paul to consider Christ's mind. And you'll notice very quickly that Paul does not merely mean, mean, let these kinds of thoughts be in you, but such a mind as governs your actions. And so we sometimes divide thought from feeling, thought, feeling from action. But what you'll see quite clearly is that when Paul is appealing to this, he doesn't mean to divorce these things from one another. But rather he's saying this is the controlling attention of Christ. And what was it? Well, fundamentally it was the loving service to His people. And we consider the perfection of love in Christ, by Christ, displayed by Him. Now you as well as I know that the Lord throughout the Bible emphasizes love. Now this may indeed set us in some sense in a feeling and disposition of unease. Because we know the world loves to use the term love and yet empties it of all of the weight and glory and majesty that is found in it. And even some in the visible church have made much of the word love while equally emptying it of its force. But we ought not to shy back 
from the notion of love. Think of how clearly the Bible emphasizes this. The Lord summarizes the whole law by love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We are to love God and to love our neighbor. And we realize that there's not a disconnect between love and obedience. For love, as Paul will write, is the fulfilling of the law. That if we love, well certainly, if we love God, we'll have no other gods before Him. If we love, if we love God, we'll certainly delight in the Sabbath day to spend time with Him. If we love our neighbor, we won't desire to steal from them. We won't desire to dishonor them. So love, we see, is quite the rich word. Paul provides us a clear description of love, as you have it, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 13. So he's not defining love. Rarely does the Bible define things so technically, but he is describing it. Now, of course, you and I regularly hear that description on occasions of weddings. And yet Paul is not speaking about a wedding. Charity suffereth long and is kind, and so on. He's speaking about the nature of love and particularly what love looks like in us. If we have love, it's that which suffers long and has a long patience. And the whole time it's suffering long, it is kind. That's love. And it's instantly we start to realize just with these two quick introductory thoughts, love is a rich, weighty, beautiful thing, far beyond natural ability, far beyond our own ability. Furthermore, it's an essential mark of grace for the Christian, such that to be without love either to God or to our neighbor is to mean we are without salvation. You think of the cross, and what is the cross but the grand display of God's love to us, John writes, and this was love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And though it is much abused, yet it must be asserted clearly and without equivocation that perhaps most importantly, one of the few attributes that God actually sets forth as being His essential reality is love. John says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now with all of this as true, you and I might think that love is easy for the Christian. But brethren, by shameful experience, we know that it's often difficult for the Christian. You talk to a couple that's been married for a year, and if they're open, they'll often talk about how they've discovered such deep-rooted principles of selfishness in themselves now that they're married. You talk to a couple that's had children and has children, and they'll say the same. Though Christians, they'll say, never did I discover how slow to love I am than when I had children, though I love them, though I have affections toward them. Yet, love is a struggle in its activity and sincerity. 
Now, brethren, this is difficult for the Christian. It is impossible for the unconverted. True love is utterly impossible. Yet, nevertheless, we ought to realize it is still difficult for the truly converted. Notice the text if we back up to verse 1. What Paul's doing in context is layering argument upon argument to convince us to love one another. If there be any consolations in Christ, well, surely there are those. We'll look at this, the Lord willing, next week. If any comfort of love, surely there's that. If any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, inward dispositions of kindness, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love. And he goes on to explain what he means by this. But our text, verses 5-8, to actually presents the bedrock foundation for why we should love one another in this extreme way. Notice, for instance, one example of how we should love one another. Verse 3, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. If there's anything that attacks the current culture, and anything that attacks idle self, it's the sincere reckoning of another person as better than myself. The whole culture is sort of cultivating this notion that you're you and you're better and you're worth it and all these things. And the Bible comes to us and says, oh, you've got dignity. You're the image bearer of God. But you are to look upon one another as better than yourselves. By verse 5, he appeals then to the mind of Christ. And by doing so, he actually points us to the perfect example of this loving and humble expression of love. Indeed, never has there been one so sincerely seeking the display of this love as is found in Christ. Never has there been one who has so willingly humbled himself as Christ has humbled Himself. Never has there been one who has so clearly and extremely shown His love as Christ has shown His love to us. His love to us saves us. And this, of course, shows us how perfect His love is. So the context is an exhortation, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. But the foundation for that exhortation is here. This is not to reduce Christ's love to a mere example, but it is to show the fullness of His love which saves us, provides us one of the grandest exhortations to why we should with great sincerity love one another. So to help us understand this perfection of love, consider three points. Firstly, Christ's personal glory. Second, Christ's willing humiliation. And third, Christ's loving service. His personal glory, His willing humiliation, and His loving service. So first then, Christ's personal glory. Now there may be many things that present difficulties to us when we think about loving people. And particularly loving some particular people. Among certain things that struggle, present struggles to us, is actually the high view of ourselves. And so think of it this way. We struggle to do what Paul exhorts us to one to four because we think they're 
beneath me. They're not to the level of my knowledge. They're not to the level of my piety. They're immature. They're provocative. They're difficult to deal with. We think, in other words, of ourselves somehow better than those whom we are called to love. We may be more thoughtful. In fact, we may be more doctrinally astute. Our lives may be more conformed to the standards of God's Word. All of these things may be the case. We may be more diligent in our service. We may be more patient with others. We may be older. We may be younger. We may be in otherwise better positions than they. We may have more social standing. But whatever it is, we tend to think of ourselves as better than others. Now, brethren, for a moment, think of this. Grant for the sake of the argument that your self-assessment is 100% true. Think for a moment and pretend, because often that's what we would have to do, pretend that you are better than everyone else. Pretend objectively that you are superior in your knowledge. Pretend objectively that your love is far warmer than everyone else's. Pretend for a moment that your doctrinal understanding is superior to all of the apostles combined. Pretend for a moment that your house is perfectly ordered, that your routines are as every Christian should have. Grant that for a moment. And then ask, in reality, if that compares to Jesus Christ. Because notice what Paul says in verse 6. He appeals to Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, brethren, most basically what this is telling us is that Jesus Christ is God. It's a little awkward in the English, and some more modern translations make it even less clear, but the Greek is, of course, our ultimate foundation. And what's important for us to know is this, that prior to the Incarnation, Jesus Christ is God. After the Incarnation, Jesus Christ is God. Now notice the words, form of God. Now, we might think, well, that means it just resembles God, but it's not the case. What Paul means is, the whole display, the whole glory, the whole beauty and dignity of what God is, Christ has. And so you can see for a moment in verse 7, Paul says, He took the form of a servant. That doesn't mean He became something similar to a servant, or He became something sort of like a servant, really close resembling it. Rather, He's saying He became a servant. He took on the display, the lowliness, the poverty of the servant because he became a servant, just as the text tells us he is in the form of God. And so he thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God. He wasn't stealing from God to be acknowledged to be God. This is who he is. Now the whole scriptures confirm this. John 1, of course, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And it goes on to testify of all that He did. He's the Creator of all things. He's the One who has brought all things into existence. He's the One who sustains all things. John 17 and verse 5. Listen to Christ's part of this prayer. And now, O Father, glorify Thou Me with Thine own self with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. He shares in the same glory of the Father for all eternity. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us that He is the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, and so on. Here's the point. This One who serves is God. Now let that sink in for a moment. Who is greater than God? What mere mortal, what ideal Christian could attain to this standard and say, I am equal to God? You think of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 6. He sees in the year that King Uzziah died, the Lord high and lifted up. And what are the angels doing? The angels who have never had a sinful thought. Angels whose power outdoes us. You read of what the angels do. And one, two angels, they obliterate whole armies. Wipe them out. They're holy themselves. And yet what Isaiah sees are these seraphims with six wings. In the presence of God, they're covering their face. In the presence of God, they're covering their feet. In the presence of God, they're flying around. And what do they not see saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The angels are superior to you and to me in knowledge, in power, in personal holiness. Yet they would never dare think that they are equal to God. In fact, on occasions when they come and minister among God's people and they're treated as something divine, they say, no, no. Not to us. Here's the point. Jesus Christ is this God. He is the eternal Son who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit is the one true God. There's none greater. There's none better. There's none superior. There is none equal. He is not mistaken to know that He is better than everyone else. He is better than you and me. He is wiser than you and I are wise. He is smarter, more intelligent, more powerful. He's perfect in holiness. He's perfect in innocence. He's perfect in righteousness. You think, children, what is God? God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You've just told us who Jesus is as He is God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in these things. This is who Christ is. Why do we stress this point? Because it's the only way to begin to understand the kind of love that we're to bear toward one another. It's the only way to begin to overcome the common, petty reasons we hesitate sincerely to serve one another. Think for a moment how in spouses there can be these things that break out and arguments arise which anyone else would say, that's so little. Why are you at one another? Or Christians, they party off against one another and they're pointing out the faults and the weaknesses of others. And anyone else that's not involved say, really? We're going to divide the church over these things? You see, the point is, brethren, what is lost in those moments is this truth. We think, well, I'm better than he is. I'm better than she is. We're better than they are. And yet at best, at best, we're only by degree better. Christ is infinitely 
essentially, eternally better. Keep that in mind. Because each one of us is not only comparatively beneath Him, we are infinitely, eternally, essentially beneath Him. We are dust, less than dust. We were nothing until He made us. Moreover, we rebelled against Him. We sinned against Him. We called evil good and good evil. We're worse than nothing. Yet He, the infinite and the infinitely glorious Son of God, is the One who loved us. Second, notice Christ's willing humiliation. How many here find it their pleasure to bring themselves low before another? How many people like to be humbled before others? We expect others to come up to our level. You see this in school. A schoolboy who learns to multiply all of a sudden looks down upon younger children who only know how to add and subtract. And they love to flout all, flaunt all of their learning and to think that they're better than the other and they're mocking the younger children in other grades. And you have it even in the church. Those who are theologically superior, objectively so, tend to ridicule and look down upon the theologically inferior. And they flaunt all of their learning and mock and ridicule the others. And it's as if they're saying, we don't really care about coming down to your level. You need to come up to our level. Of course, this is shameful anywhere. It's most shameful when it's in the church to become embittered against those who are less mature than we are, to become impatient and ultimately unkind to those who do not match or reach our own levels of understanding. These things are, of course, corruptions. How must it be for the eternal Son of God? His knowledge, His love, His perfect activity versus our ignorance, our selfishness, our idleness, our vanity. Think for a moment if Christ were like you and I in these comparisons and these looking down upon our brethren, if Christ were like that, would He not have given up on us millennia ago, consigning us to the hell that we deserve? But notice again verses 6 and 7. It says, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So he wasn't considering it wrong to be counted equal with God. He is God. But it says that he made himself of no reputation. He became a servant. He became man. Now this doesn't mean he stopped being God. He gave up none of his divine attributes. He didn't cease to be omniscient or omnipresent. There's a mystery, of course, that takes place at the Incarnation where certain of His attributes are veiled and so on, but He never gave up anything of His divinity. If He had, He wouldn't be truly and fully God and truly and fully man. But what it does mean is that He truly took to Himself a place of humility in His Incarnation. He, the eternal God, 
took to himself true human body and a reasonable soul. And this is what people saw. When people looked upon Jesus, they didn't see a halo. They didn't have some aura about him saying, this is the Son of God. There was nothing extrinsic to him that was a clue to others that he is the glorious object of the angel's praise, that he is the maker of heaven and earth. Think about how it's spoken of in, and throughout his incarnation, his lowliness. Matthew eight twenty, Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now keep in mind that the text says, He made Himself of no reputation. He voluntarily took this unto Himself. He who is the Maker of heaven and earth said, I'm going to take unto Myself a place where I don't have a bed. Now brethren, you and I might travel or we might not, but surely there have been occasions when we've been away from our home missing out the comforts and routines of our homes, and how easily we can be put off by the loss of those things. This is the Son of God who willingly took upon Himself this lowly position. Mark 6.3 Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not His sisters here with us? And they were offended at Him. If this is the Son of God, Surely he wouldn't have such a lowly position as a carpenter. Why should we follow him? Oh, the mockeries. And so on. His birth finds him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there is no room for them in the inn. His teaching brought forth the ridicule, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? And all is summed up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Do you see what the text is telling us? Christ, who is infinitely glorious, voluntarily abased Himself in the lowest of circumstances in order to serve us. It is His willing humiliation. His Father didn't come with a stern brow and voice and say, get down there and serve them, or I'll be on you. He says, as we read in Psalm 40, verse 6, and repeat it in the book of Hebrews, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of Me, to do Thy will I take, what? Delight. I delight to humble myself. I delight to have no place to lay my head. I delight to enter this world of sin and misery. I delight to be misunderstood, misrepresented, abused, ridiculed, and even crucified. Why do you delight in this? Because I love them. This is what He's done. He made Himself of no reputation. He was not forced to it. He chose this course with joy. Now brethren, we stress this because as the text is telling us, Christ's love to us brought Him to humble Himself for us. He did not shout from heaven, 
with a thunderous voice, get your act together and then come up and be with me. He didn't resoundingly cry out from the heavens, fix yourselves, learn, get it all right, get your home in order, get your life together. Instead, he comes down to serve the likes of you and me. He didn't groan to his father. Look at these pathetic and wicked sinners. He didn't complain to his father, why would you give me such an inconsiderate type of people? But rather, with sincere love set upon us, he gladly received them and gladly volunteered in his humbling of himself for them. Brethren, this is love. This is Christ's love. He saw us infinitely beneath Him in ways that, understand this, no one in this life is beneath you or me. So there are differences. There are degrees of knowledge, degrees of piety, degrees of learning, degrees of honor, degrees of dignity. All of that's true. But there is no measurement that is able to capture the measurement between Christ, the Son of God, and you and me. We think of the moral horror of Hitler. Hitler is closer to your likeness than you are to Christ. We think of the audacity of others who have been rude to us and cruel to us. They are more like you. You are more like they are. Christ is like you. Because He's the Son of God. Never once an impure thought. Never once an unkind or untoward approach. He sees us in our infinitely loathsome sin. He acknowledges our rebellion against Him. And yet, we find Him taking up our spot. We find Him washing the disciples' feet. We find Him making Himself of no reputation. So think for a moment. When it is that the obstacle to your loving submission and deference to others is these people are inferior to me. For a moment, what if Christ thought that of you? How many times am I going to put up with my brother or sister? How many times will I have to correct them? How many times do I have to do this for them? What if that's how Christ dealt with us? Christian, your own conscience will testify how many times you've come to Christ over the same type of thing and said, Oh God, I have done it again. I've sinned against You. And what do you appeal to but the work of Christ in loving service for you? For Christ's sake, forgive me. Why is there that ability to be said, For Christ's sake, forgive me? Because Christ willingly humbled Himself to save you. This is the kind of love that Paul is exhorting us to have toward one another. Matthew records that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but as Christ says, but to minister. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give His life a ransom for many. This is 
the perfection of Christ's love. And it leads us, thirdly, to Christ's loving service. Why did Christ so humble himself? As the text says, he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Why did he take upon himself this humanity? It says that he humbled himself yet further. This astonishes us. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Did Christ humble himself so he could stand next to us and berate us and say, look what you're doing? Did he humble himself so he could show us how inferior we are? The Bible tells us he humbled himself to serve us in the ultimate measure of death and even death on the cross. He took to humanity. The angels must be astonished at this still. You think of this for a moment. Since the incarnation recorded in the Gospels, the Son of God remains incarnate. Right now, the Son of God is incarnate. Glorified, but incarnate. The angels have never ceased worshiping Him. The angels which are made ministering spirits unto the people of God now look upon the Son of God as the incarnate Son of God. It's an astonishing thought. But what's more astonishing is that this One who became incarnate became incarnate in order to die for His people. The death of the cross. Death is something few of us would ever think of choosing. Who is there in this room, in reality, that you would say without hesitation, I would die for them? If you extend that to the world, the ratio becomes even more extreme. Who is there that you would willingly part with your life for? Left to ourselves, there are few people we would willingly die for. Brethren, when you think of what Paul says, that he became obedient unto death, and to explain even the death of the cross, knowing the horrors of crucifixion, knowing the pain and the agony that is borne on the cross, who is there that you would be willing to suffer for, agonize over for, in such a death. Yet this is precisely what the Son of God did in His incarnation. The cross was an instrument of un- torture. It was actually devised, historians tell us, to draw out the sufferings and the shame of the one on the cross. So we, of course, are most familiar with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which lasted for a number of hours. But historically, that was a rare occasion because the cross would actually permit the one suffering to last for a number of days. And so the instrument of death elongated the suffering. And Christ feels this. Yet you and I know that far more was at work on the cross than the physical agony. You remember that even with Christ's cross, there were two others who were crucified with Him who knew the same type of 
of physical pain. They knew the same difficulties and trials that Christ was experiencing physically. And you and I also know that historically there were thousands more who were crucified. But there is this cross particularly that is unique in all of history. Because both, it's the Son of God incarnate who's suffering. And secondly, it is that He's suffering as the cursed one. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. His death on the cross was His willing, assuming, taking upon Himself the fullness of the wrath of God that you and I deserved. Now before we go further, understand this. This is the wrath of God that He has. Can you understand that? The Son of God hates your sin. He despises your sin. He detests your sin. You and I tend to think of certain sins as significant and other sins less significant. But understand this. Those sins which we consider less significant, God hates with a holy hatred. He despises with more disgust, if we can use that word, than you and I despise those things which disgust us. And yet Christ, who despises sin, willingly became the one bearing our sins and taking to Himself the fullness of the wrath of God against us for our sins. Whom did He do this for? We're right to say sinners. That's true. The Bible says it. But for a moment, force yourself to see this. If you're a believer, He's done this for you because of you. Because you deserve it. There's no other way of enjoying the peace of God. There's no other way of enjoying heaven and everlasting life. There's no other way of enjoying salvation beyond this way. He who is most pure, eternally righteous, was willing to have your wretched sins attributed to Him. Those disgusting and filthy sins, He said, place them on Me. Moreover, He was willing to have His Father plunge the sword of justice through Himself. And He was willing to do this for you. For whom would you die? For scarcely a man will die even for a righteous man, the book of Romans tells us. But here's the wonder of Christ's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice again the text, verse 8, being found in fashion as a man, it says He humbled Himself. So there's already a degree of humiliation as He makes Himself no reputation, takes upon Himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and now as the God-man found in fashion as a man, He yet says, I've not gone low enough. I must yet humble Myself further. Oh, what degree of lowliness will you encounter? Will you take upon yourself, Lord Jesus Christ? The angels, you can imagine, are saying, surely this is enough. Surely the Lord of glory can do no else. And yet He says, no, I go to the cross for them. I go to be cursed for them. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us. We read of Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Here is the willing service of Christ. The love, not in word, but indeed in truth. Beyond which there is no greater love. There's no greater display of love than this. There's no equal display of love to this. This transcends every measure of because it's the love of God towards sinners. Now brethren, He undertook all of this not to complain against us, but to bless us. Not to show us up and put us in our place, but rather to exalt us and bring us to His place. His service of sacrifice, His death on the cross is entirely motivated by, saturated with, and displaying sincere love. What more perfectly displays Christ's humble, unifying love than the cross? We read earlier in one of the texts, Christ testifies that He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. Does that not trouble you somewhat? Let me say this clearly. God serves you. God is your servant. If that's not true, there's no way of your salvation. Now we naturally recoil against that and say, no, no, God is God. He is glorious. He's the object of praise. We're to be His servants. All of that's true. Absolutely. 100%. He is the object of your praise. He is transcendently glorious. He is exalted above the heavens. There's none as equal. Essentially considered, He is God. You're dust. You're nothing. But here is the wonder of the Gospel. The God who is eternal has made Himself willingly, lovingly, glad with delight to be your servant. Not in the way the world thinks. Not in this genie-in-the-bottle kind of nonsense. But in the way of ministering life everlasting to bring you out of death, out of hell, out of imprisonment, into life everlasting and joy in heaven. He serves us still. What is Christ doing at this very moment? I think He's saying to the Father, Father, look what I've done for them. Look how long I've prayed for them. Look how many times I've sent My Word to them. Look how much I've given to them. I've given them Your Word. I've given them preachers. What is it more than I can do? You know, let's move on to someone else. But it says He continues a priesthood forever. And He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Right now, Christ is serving you as a believer because He still loves you.
He's also preparing a place for you. He's serving you. And when He comes with all else that is true of His coming, He comes to serve you, to welcome you into His eternal glory that you might enjoy the riches of the privilege of delighting yourself in Him. Brethren, we understand the reason we struggle with this concept because we wish no detraction, no dishonor to the Most Holy Name. But this is the astonishing truth of the Gospel. Christ, out of love, has made Himself your servant in order to save. And if that doesn't cause you to love Him, nothing will. But brethren, in context, as we'll move to see the Lord willing next week, this is the argument for our loving one another. But they're sinners. But they're not as mature as I am. They're not as doctrinally clear as I am. They aren't as enduring as I am. They aren't as put together as I am. They don't have their house in order like I have. And you take all of that and you put it next to the immeasurable transcendence of Christ and you say, how can I think to excuse myself from loving the lowliest Christian when Christ the Son of God has loved me in this way. All of the bickerings are given their proper context to say inexcusable. All of the divisions are given their context to say absolutely shameful. All of the pride and arrogance and bitter invectives and words against one another are given the context to say, you must not understand the Gospel. The perfection of Christ's love reproves all of this lack of love. This perfect love is meant to multiply. Do you see verse 5? Let this mind be in you. Let this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, be in you. Let the same kind of thoughts, the same kind of actions, the same kind of disposition now be in you. Let the same type of service, the same kind of gladness, the same voluntary giving of oneself to the improvement of others, to no gain of your own. Let that be in you. Brethren, what if that happened to two people here? To three people? To four people? To five people? That this kind of love was multiplying? What if it happened in congregations? Brethren, why does it not happen? But among other things, because we fail to consider the mind which was in Christ Jesus and deal rightly and fully with His love to us. Surely this reproves all of us who have the finger out at others as the reason we will not love them. Well, I'd be gentle and I'd be kind and I'd be thoughtful if they'd be kind and thoughtful to me. May God keep us from such a thing being held to us by Him. But Here is the great blessing that we close with. Christ is your serving Savior still. So as we think about the practice of love next week, the Lord willing, verses 1-5, to we actually start first with this. 
not make my brethren better. But first, Christ, you who have loved me in immeasurable ways and continue to do so, give me this mind. Change my heart. Make me to have this. You've loved me. Bless me now to know that love toward others. And as that happens, his mind is replicated, multiplied in this world. The head of Christ is now influencing the members of Christ. And oh, brethren, if this continues, will it not be said as it was said years back, see how they love one another. The only way this comes to pass is first by reckoning with the perfection of love in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?